0: Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Tonight we pick up in Isaiah chapter 49. We are in a section of Isaiah that is famous, famous enough anyways to have its own title. We're in a section of the book that has been known for a long time as the Servant Songs. And technically, we've already encountered one all the way back in chapter 42, but we'll hit the rest of the Servant Songs tonight, beginning in chapter 49. Now, you may remember as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, this second half keeps focusing on the servant of the Lord, and we've seen three major different servants that are being referred to. The first is God's original servant, the nation of Israel, who Isaiah says is blind and deaf and no good at all, but he promises it won't stay that way. And then there's his servant Cyrus, who he will call by name, who does not yet know him, who is a foreigner, and will deliver his people from Babylon. And then the last servant, the servant of the Lord. But what's interesting is, as we've been going through the book, very early on, all the way back at chapter 40, kind of all of these three servants, each one of them, walk on the stages in those first few chapters. But then Isaiah focuses on one at a time. The first one the nation of Israel, and then as we saw last week, Cyrus, the promised deliverer, God's evidence that he is the real God and there is no other, and now we focus primarily, focus entirely uh, on the servant, the one who is to come, the one who resolves the tensions of the book of Isaiah, and so it opens in chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. Again here, we see that Isaiah's call here is an international call. It's much further than the boundaries of Israel, even to uh, the boundary peoples that are far away. And notice here what it says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Now, if we were just to read these first few verses, we could suggest, okay, maybe this is Isaiah getting autobiographical, Listen, everybody, I'm going to tell you my story. God called me from the womb. Now, that actually wouldn't be that bad of an interpretation if all we had was verse 1, because that's a common statement that's made about God's prophets. Consider what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. I've known you since before you were born, and I've destined you for a work. The words that I put in your mouth, you will speak to other people. However, the further we read into Isaiah 49, the clearer it becomes that this isn't Isaiah speaking for himself, but the servant that he's been speaking about in chapter 42, all the way back in chapter 11 with the righteous branch, over and over again, this servant has appeared. And here he walks onto the pages of Isaiah and speaks for himself. That's why we call these the servant songs, because they're in the mouth of the servant. But notice it says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, who he named my name. Now that's not merely a statement of calling before birth, there is a clear emphasis there on the woman involved, on the mother. And interestingly enough, when we look at the Messianic prophecies, when we look at the passages that are Messianic in the Old Testament, they always focus on the mother of the Messiah and not the father. The exception, of course, would be that the Messiah is expected to be the son of David. However, when we look, for example, at Genesis 3.15, The very first time God says that he's going to do something about what's gone wrong, remember the context. Adam and Eve have just rebelled against God, they've eaten of the fruit, they've hid from God, they've lied to him about what's going on, they've blamed one another, God is meeting out a sentence, he's giving out consequence, in the middle he makes a promise, and he says, "Yes." you woman, yes, you Eve, you're going to uh, labor now in difficulty and pain, you will bring forth children. But then he makes a promise. He says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. And although the serpent's seed will crush the heel of your seed, his heel will crush the serpent's head. Okay, and so there's this kind of cryptic exchange that uh, when we get to the New Testament, we see is speaking of the cross itself, this reality that the greatest defeat of the Messiah would actually be his greatest victory, that Satan's biggest win would actually be his undoing. In fact, I can't really think of any better picture of that, just to nail it down really quickly, than what happens in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as four children wander into the mystical land of Narnia and become acquainted with Aslan the Mighty, Uh, and then one of the children betrays his friends and falls under the condemnation of the law of the land because of his relationship with an evil queen, Jadis. And so the requirement for that betrayal, according to the law, is death, and Aslan offers himself up instead. And Jadis, the devil-like character, is ecstatic. And she summons all of her dark friends around to mock and to celebrate their victory over the once powerful Aslan. But it's actually in that death that Aslan breaks the table fulfills the law and overcomes Jadis, and Narnia is saved, right? That's C.S. Lewis's retelling of what we're talking about here. But all the way back in the beginning, it's not the seed of Adam that will be the savior, but the seed of the woman, which even in Hebrew language is a strange way to put things. Generally, culturally, Women provide the egg, or the womb, and men provide the seed, or the sperm. But that's not how it's written in Genesis. There's this emphasis on the woman. We saw the same thing in Isaiah chapter seven. As God says to the king, King Ahaz, behold, the woman shall conceive and bear a child. The virgin shall conceive and bear a child, focusing on the woman. We see the same thing in the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who's to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Again, an emphasis on the woman. And just to look at one more place, go ahead and turn backwards to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22 verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb, you made me to trust at my mother's breast. Now, when we put the four together, all being messianic, it may not register as being very significant for you, but remember that Israel is a patriarchal and patrocentristic society, in other words, the centerpiece of the family in Jewish thinking is the father. And so you draw your lineage from the father, people know you as consider, for example, the name of Peter, Simon bar Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, okay? That emphasis is completely lacking in all of these prophecies, instead there's a constant reference to the woman. Now it is interesting that when we get to the New Testament, of course, not only does Matthew connect the virgin prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 with the birth of Jesus, but also look at what Paul does in Galatians chapter 2. There's a tendency sometimes to think that the virgin birth of Jesus is only referenced in the Gospel of Matthew and then never comes up as being significant in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, some more progressive Christians have suggested, is it really that essential of a doctrine? Couldn't it just be that Matthew misread Isaiah, and in actuality, this isn't a big deal? Do we have to believe that Jesus had a miraculous birth? But here in Galatians, I want you to notice what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Now, clearly here, Paul could just be making a reference to the fact that Jesus was fully human, the Son of God become man. But again, he doesn't say born of a father, but born of woman. The emphasis is the same. The Bible is consistent on this, okay? It's one of the clear, clarifying connections between the Old and the New Testament. Now, remember the wording there in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, because we also see that back in Isaiah. Okay, so Isaiah again, chapter 49, verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Now, what's the idea here of this servant being hidden? The idea seems to be in Hebrew idiom that it was put away until it was needed. Okay, close by, protected, prepared. And that's what Paul says as well. In the fullness of the time, if I could paraphrase, at just the right time, God sent his son born of a woman. And in Isaiah, it makes a similar promise. I'm here, I'm arrived, but the plan is long. The preparations are extensive. God has hidden me and protected me in the shadow of his hand, but now he's made me sharp like a sword. He's made me a weapon of his righteousness. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now we look at this and we go, now wait a minute, I thought we were talking about not the nation of Israel, but it seems pretty clear here, the title is given, My Servant Israel. But again, if you've been reading Isaiah with us over the course of this place, this My Servant Israel is completely different in character than the my servant Israel we've been reading about, who again is blind, deaf, rebellious, in need of saving, whereas this servant Israel is a savior, what I would suggest to you here is that Jesus is, if you will, the true Israel. That where Israel has failed, Jesus steps in and fulfills what they were ever meant to be. Now, again, for us being Western thinkers, that's a strange thing, the interchange between a nation and a person. But if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that these things go hand in hand in Jewish thought, that David and the nation of Israel are one and the same, that Abraham and the nation of Israel are one and the same. In fact, there's this running prophecy that begins with Abraham about the seed. In fact, as we already saw, it goes all the way back to Genesis, the seed. But if you watch how that seed is talked about, it swings from being plural, your seed will be numbered like the stars, Abraham, to specific, your seed through Isaac and not through Ishmael. It weaves in and out. And just like in English, the plural of seed is seed, uh, unless you're talking about plant seeds and then it's seeds, but that's a pretty new English change. Uh, In Hebrew, it's the same way. The word there is the same, whether it's singular or plural. That's why Paul says in Galatians, now when it says, to your seed I will give, he means seed singular and not seed plural. He's not telling us what the Hebrew parsing is there, he's interpreting for us, okay? But all of that to say here that that this is an Israelite who is the representative Israelite, who is the head of Israel and therefore speaks for, stands for Israel. And as we'll see, there's still a tension here. This is my servant Israel, but there's also going to be, uh, in Isaiah 53, we're going to see this servant die for, Isaiah says, my people. It's Israel dying for Israel, okay? In fact, notice here, this is the first time we get a reference to something strange. Do you remember what was said about Cyrus? Cyrus. He's going to accomplish everything I've set out. No enemy will stand against him, nor no door will be remaining locked, etc. But notice here, the servant speaks of himself, verse four. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. In other words, the servant says, "Is it all for naught?" There's a little bit of despair here. I've tried, but have I failed? And yet, there's still a maintaining of faith. Surely, God will vindicate me. Surely, God will bring about my reward. There's the first hint here of an apparent defeat, which will end up being a victory. Verse 5, now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. So it's my servant Israel, and what's the task of that servant? To bring Jacob, another name from Israel, back To God, okay? And so we see that distinction. To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Okay, so notice what's happening here structurally. It's pretty significant. The servant speaks and he says, is it all for naught? Did it it fail? He says, but I'll continue to trust in God. And then God reminds him of his job to bring back Israel. And then look at verse 6. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Understand what's happening here. Verse 6 explains verse 4. Why is there this apparent defeat? Why does it look like everything's for naught? God first reaffirms, Israel is still part of the plan, and then he says, but I have a greater plan. As if that wasn't enough, I'm actually going to make you a light to the nations, okay? Now, this is so significant doctrinally, because this is the idea that Paul picks up on in the book of Romans when he explains why was it that God's prepared people Israel, who were promised the Messiah, whose Messiah had their blood in their bodies and was one of their national members, why is it that when the Messiah finally came, his own people rejected him? And Paul doesn't see that as being an accidental consequence. He sees it as being part of the plan. As nerdy people like to say, and I don't even remember where this meme comes from, it's not a bug, it's a feature, okay? It it wasn't an accident, it's part of the plan. In fact, listen to Paul's words here in Romans chapter 11. So in the book of Romans, Paul lays out a logical explanation of, uh, of the entire gospel, of the good news. He starts all the way at the beginning, that, uh, that the world stands condemned and needs a savior. And then after proving that, he says, but God has provided one through Jesus Christ, not through the law, but through faith. And then he talks about how that salvation works itself out in forgiveness, in the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and how it culminates in nothing separating us from the love of God, right? But then in chapter 9, he deals with a question, and the question is, wait a minute, if God has not been faithful to Israel, if the Old Testament is full of promises that God made to a particular people, and here they are scattered and forgotten, how can we trust the promises available to us in Jesus Christ? What about the Jew, is the question of Romans 9, 10, and 11, Okay. It's a very significant set of scripture, but he draws from these ideas here in Isaiah. So look at Romans 11, verse seven. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Passage sound familiar, doesn't it? That's Isaiah. He says, just as Isaiah said, The messiah was not received because the people were not receptive he continues david says let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and retribution for them let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see in behind their backs forever in other words god expected stubborn israel god planned for stubborn israel in fact verse 11 so i asked did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It is through the rejection of their Messiah that the Messiah goes forth out to all the nations. Just as Isaiah had said no, 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 the stumbling, the blindness, the rejection, as he puts it in the mouth of the servant, the apparent defeat is part of the plan because my plan is bigger than just Israel, it involves all the nations. And then I want you to just turn to one more place, jump all the way down to verse 32. Summarizing his entire argument in chapter 11, Paul says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Okay? And so Israel, excuse me, the the nations were already living in disobedience, estranged and alienated from God. But Israel also finds themselves in need of mercy. God consigns all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. God allows Israel to reject their Messiah so that that message might bring about worldwide salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. In fact, if you kept reading when I stopped back in verse 12 of chapter 11, he says that God sent the message out to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. I'll give you a really quick parallel. Remember the parable that Jesus tells about the man who has two sons, right? And so one of the sons asks for his inheritance up front, goes out and spends it wastefully, finds himself selling himself into slavery because of his debts, and then he wakes up one morning amongst the pigs, and he goes, this doesn't make any sense. There's plenty of food in my father's house, and his servants eat better than I do, being a slave of some foreigner. I'm gonna go back to my father." I'll tell him everything I've done, I'll explain all of the mistakes that I've made, and I'll ask him not to take me again as a son, I'm unworthy of that, but to make me one of his hired servants. And so he goes, and he practices his speech, and he's ready, and his father sees him coming a far way off, and he runs to him, and he embraces him, and before his son gets any words out at all, he invites him fully back into the family. And not only does he give him that full status of son again, but he also throws a party. He has a feast. Meanwhile, his elder brother, who has been living at home and working for his father, status quo since the younger brother left, comes home, hears the party, and asks one of the household servants what's going on. He says, your brother's back. And your father's killed the fatted calf and thrown a big party. And the son is so upset. And he crosses his arm and he refuses to go into the party. And so just as the father did for the younger brother, he comes out to the older brother and he says what are you doing out here? And he says, this son who wasted all your money with whores, he comes back and you throw him this big party, you kill the fatted calf, you do all these things, never once have you given me anything to even have a small you know, dinner with my friends. And what does the father say? Son, all I have is yours. Now here's what we don't always get about that story. Both the sons find themselves outside the party, okay? One, because he thinks he's undeserving of it, and so he's going to settle to be a servant. And the other, because he thinks he's deserving of it, but has missed out on the fatherly relationship at all. He says, I've slaved for you. I've been a perfect employee. But he doesn't understand his status as a son. But here's the thing, and this is true even within revivals within the church. God uses the faraway, uh, questionable conversion, younger brothers to provoke the elder brothers back into a real relationship with God. But that's just writ small, what Paul says is writ large on the history of the world. That God uses you to provoke the Jews to jealousy because we enjoy all the promises that were given to their fathers in Jesus Christ. It's part of the plan. It's to draw them into the party. Okay? Back to Isaiah. Isaiah says this is the plan. Salvation not just for the Jews, but reaching to the end of the earth. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. And so here he speaks to the servant, and what does it say? Not that the nations are going to be receptive to this Messiah. Not all of them anyways, but he's going to be despised. Then in some way he's going to be a servant of rulers. In fact, verse, it continues here, kings shall see. And arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. In other words, Isaiah says the initial reception of the nations is also going to be one of resistance. It's also going to be, but there will come a time where all kings come and bow down and recognize we were wrong. You are the Messiah. Uh, Consider Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the kings of the earth plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed one. He says, basically, this whole thing, this resistance to the Messiah doesn't make any sense. And then he exhorts, kiss the son now while there's still time. Embrace him now. But there's the recognition that eventually the Messiah will rule over all things, whether they want to or not. Now, we're going to come back to this idea and we'll have a better window into it. So let's move on. Verse eight. Thus says the Lord... In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to portion the desolate heritage, heritages. Again, notice we see a person operating as a covenant. Okay, we've seen that earlier in Isaiah, but again, it's repeated. Verse nine, saying to the prisoners, come out and to those who are in darkness, appear. And they shall feed along the ways, on bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by the springs of water he will guide them. Notice here the language has suddenly become pastoral, shepherding language right? It's, it's the fulfillment of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But I want you to draw your attention to that language in verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. That's the language that John employs in the book of Revelation chapter 7 to talk about where this is all going. That God is gathering together a people of all nations and he will protect them and preserve them. And remember there, hunger, thirst, scorching wind, sun, those are all aspects of the curse. This is God protecting people from what happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And then notice, I love this imagery in verse 11, I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. In other words, remove every obstacle, just blow through the entire mountain pass a wide road for all who will come. Behold, verse 12, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west, these from the land of the Syene, which would be the south. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And so he comes to the end of the servant song and he breaks out into an exhortation to praise God, which is another thing we've seen consistently in the book of Isaiah, and we will again tonight. But notice, Isaiah gives this exhortation, rejoice, because this is God's plan of comfort, verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Remember the context of these prophecies, right? These are given to people who are living In Babylon, after the days that Isaiah lives, he's written this book, and the people reading it are living in enemy territory, with Jerusalem destroyed, the temple dismantled, the priesthood scattered to the wind. In other words, if I could paraphrase the audience of Isaiah right here, they're saying, so what? What does it matter what God is going to do all the way there? How can we even believe him where here we sit in the ashes of our old life? Here we're experiencing all of this defeat. Notice what Isaiah says in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? He makes an illustration. He says, can a woman in the midst of nursing a baby suddenly forget and reject that child, cast it away from her? It's it's pretty unthinkable. It's not that it doesn't happen, but it's so unnatural is the phrase we would use, right? God says, but if if that could happen, he says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, Israel. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hand, and your walls are continuously before me. Have you ever written something to remember on your hand or on your arm, right? This is how God is. He's so devoted to Israel, and the word here for engraved is carved, it's, it's tattoo level, okay? You know, some people get the mom tattoo on their shoulder. God basically says here, right on my hand is Israel. In fact, it looks like, because he says your walls are continuously before me, the city of Jerusalem is just tattooed on his palms. It's commitment. It's permanence, okay? It's promises. Verse 17, your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid waste go out from you Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather. They all come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. In other words, what he's saying is the desolation, the difficulty, the destruction, it's temporary. And you will see in your own days the restoration of these things. Verse 19, surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land surely now will be too narrow for your inhabitants and all those who swallow you up will be far away. Now this pushes the envelope. It's easy to read this looking backwards and go, okay, well, yeah, isn't that what happened? Under Cyrus, as we read earlier in Isaiah, uh, a proclamation goes out. Israel begins to resettle in Jerusalem and reestablished there, and by the days of Jesus, right, they're living back in the land. The temple is rebuilt. The priesthood is operating, but it pushes further here, and it says the land's going to be too small for you. You're going to be overcrowded in Jerusalem. Now, if you read the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, it does not look like that, okay? It looks like a barely inhabited place. Most of it's demolished, and then there's a few rebuilt buildings where people are living, In fact, notice what it says in verse 20, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. That's a weird thing to say, because what are the children of bereavement? Those are the lost children, right? That's what it means to be bereaved. It's a statement of grief. He says, but the children of your period of bereavement are going to say, build on another addition. We need more room here. Okay, it's a contrast between things as they are and things as they will be. In fact, notice verse 21, you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? Okay. So get the picture here. There's a woman. She's lost all of her children. Death, disease, destruction, war, it doesn't really say. And she's weeping. And she feels a little tug on her dress. And she opens her eyes. And there's a room full of children going, hey, this studio apartment isn't big enough. We've got to get a bigger house. And she goes, wait, where did all these kids come from, right? That's the image. And so it says here, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says, verse 22, the Lord God, behold, I'll lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers. And they're queens, you're nursing mothers, okay? And so there's an international aid effort to bring the children back. Now, it may be here talking about the return of Jewish people to the land of Israel, but when it talks here about foster kings, when it talks here about broader families, when it talks here about non-biological children, I would suggest to you it's better to read this as being unexpected additional adopted kids, Children who join in with Israel, join in with the nation, but, uh, but are unexpected because they are international, because they are foreigners, because like Paul says about Israel uh, and us, that we have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel, surprisingly and against nature. Verse 23, kings shall be your foster fathers and queens, your nursing mothers, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Which is very descriptive, but not necessarily as uh, shame-stating as it sounds. Okay. Lick the dust of your feet, to me, when I read it in English, sounds exactly the same as you know, placing your foot on the head of somebody you despise. And it may be that. Okay, you need to remember here that Israel is in a place where they're hated by the nations, where they're crying out for deliverance over their enemies. And so it may be here that this is a picture of their enemies saying uncle. But as we'll see, at the very least, that's not the only type of bowing down that happens. It's not just the bowing down of surrender because you are stronger. It's also the willing and joyful bowing down. Both seem to be happening. Then you will know, he says, then you Israel when I've reversed your fortune entirely, when I've taken the widow and given her a room full of children, right? Then you will know that I'm the Lord and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Again, God will be proven faithful in all of his promises. Every word that he's given will come to pass and nobody who trusts in him will be disappointed, okay? Verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even of the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. And I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their blood as with wine. Again, very descriptive, and I would suggest to you that probably the comparison here is the multiple times uh, in the days of Gideon or in the days of Joshua, where the enemies are gathered against Israel. But God strikes such fear in their heart, they begin to slaughter one another. That's the idea, right? It's the armies are going to fall apart in their alliance against Israel and kill one another. And then notice, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob. So do the math here with me. When God is done and keeps his promises and delivers Israel, Israel will know that he is the Redeemer, and so will the rest of the world. Okay, that's Isaiah's point. Chapter 50, verse 1. Now, that ends the first servant song, and now there's an interlude as, as Isaiah continues to talk to Israel. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Okay, now remember, Israel is in a place of exile. God and his armies of Israel have been defeated by the armies of another God. And so the question that, the, that Isaiah is dealing with here is, what does this mean theologically? How did this happen? And God goes, let's talk. He says, first, if I've completely forsaken you and given up on you, if I've divorced you, where is the certificate of divorce? Can you go down to City Hall and find the place where I've said I've, I'm done with you? I've had enough of you? He's drawing this from what Deuteronomy 24 says. If a man finds something unclean in a woman, let him give her a certificate of divorce and then send her away, okay? That's important for the woman. It's a protection for the woman, as crazy as that sounds, because it shows that her relationship with this man has ended. Because if she were to have a relationship with another man without that certificate, what would it be? Adultery. And can you imagine that there were men so horrible that they would put a woman through death When they're the ones that cast her away, right? It's for protection of the woman. But his point is here, if I was married to you, if you were my bride, Israel, where is the divorce papers? Now, if you're well acquainted with the scriptures, you go, well, Jeremiah says that God divorced Israel, and that's almost true. Jeremiah actually says that God has divorced the 10 northern tribes, the ones that have already been dealt with in Assyria, okay? But even still, the points that those two authors are making are different, I would suggest to you this, that God was fully in his right to send Israel away, that they got what they deserved, that God owed them nothing. However, the beauty is also God's sending them away was not final, wasn't permanent. And so we can look at it from both directions. Here, Isaiah is seeking to encourage, whereas Jeremiah is seeking to condemn and point out what they've done wrong. And the second uh, one he says is, or to which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? The idea here is, through my bad money management, did I get myself into debt and had to sell my family into slavery to get myself out of debt? Do you see what both of these are? One says, have I given up on you because of your unfaithfulness? And the answer is no. And the second is, am I incapable of keeping you safe? And the answer is no, okay? Isaiah is clarifying, he's clearing the field of theological misunderstandings. Look at how he finishes here at the end of verse one. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. This isn't my fault, but yours. Verse two, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, Was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? God speaks to Israel here and he says, I was right there. I was ready to deliver. All that was needed was repentance and a cry for help, but it didn't come. He has a way to forgive them of their sins, but it involves repentance, but they were unwilling to repent. He says, could I not have saved you even in the 11th hour? Look at what he says. Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. That's all imagery from Egypt in the Exodus. God says, Have you forgotten how strong and how powerful of a deliverer I am? Did I not have control over all the elements? Verse 4 The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary morning by morning he awakens he awakens my ear to hear as those who were taught and so we jump suddenly back into another servant song so the final thing the thing that hangs in the air is i didn't give you papers to divorce this isn't over yet i didn't run out of money to redeem you aren't i the one who was powerful enough to redeem you all the way back in egypt And he lets that sit there and then suddenly the servant takes the stage and he begins to speak again. And notice what he says. He says, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And so the servant says that he's going to have a ministry of the word, a nourishing ministry of the word, one that brings encouragement. And notice where that came from. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear those, hear as those who were taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. And so here the servant says, I was a willing student, and God taught me directly. Okay. Remember when Jesus is even just a young child at the age of 12 in the book of Luke? Jesus is 12. His parents, Joseph and Mary, go to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival. They travel with all of their family, probably all of their town, and when they leave in a big caravan, they don't realize that Jesus isn't with them. They assume he's with, you know, Uncle Jedediah or, or Cousin Job or something like that. They just don't realize he's unaccounted for. And they get far into their journey all the way back to Nazareth until they realize. And so they go back and they're desperately looking for their son. And they find Jesus in the temple dialoguing with the religious leaders at the age of 12. And it says they were astounded by his questions, How was it that his knowledge of the scriptures were so solid? Remember, Jesus uh, was not one of the educated elite. He was a peasant of Israel, and yet he knows the scriptures. And more importantly, he knows what they mean. And he applies them and he teaches them. And what's the constant refrain in the gospels about the words of Jesus? That he astounded the crowds because his teaching was so different than other people's, right? Where did that come from? Isaiah says it happened as God directly taught and instructed Jesus himself. In his fullness of humanity, he imparted to him a word, and then most importantly, what limits us in a divine education? Disobedience. Disobedience makes for closed eyes. It makes for uh, unopened ears. It causes us to misinterpret, to stop listening, to wander out of our lessons, to come up with our own teachings. To take the, did God really say in the garden and say, I'm going to determine now what's right and wrong. But he didn't find that in Jesus. In fact, notice what it says, verse five, the Lord God opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. To paraphrase what Paul says in Philippians, Jesus was obedient He took on the form of a servant and was obedient to the Lord, even to the point of death. Throughout the trial of Jesus, throughout the despising and the mocking, throughout the beatings that he receives, no disobedience. In fact, Hebrews says something profound. It says that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered, which means that it was a costly lesson, not an easy one. It wasn't hypothetical. It wasn't theoretical. It was practiced. It was lived out. When Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek, he's not speaking instruction that he doesn't fully and completely experience. And he experiences it not just as someone who's a better person than you, but as someone who's fully in submission to God the Father. And Isaiah points to that here. And so, again, we're like, wait, so... The servant of the Lord, the appointed one, God's chosen one, the one who's instructed, the one whose ministry is one of giving nourishment and encouragement. He's going to be beaten and mocked and struck. And then notice in verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Luke seems to pick up on that imagery there. The idea here of setting your face like a flint, you know, a flint is, is a sharp rock, It has only edges. It's it's something that when it strikes, it strikes through. It doesn't bounce off. Okay. Luke says something similar. Okay. Uh, Luke's gospel has basically three parts. Like every gospel, the last part is the passion narrative, the last week of Jesus' life, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection. Okay. Like the other gospels, it begins with his ministry and the disciples coming to realize who he is, which culminates with this appearance of Jesus in beautiful, bright light, and the disciples having this profound encounter with Jesus, and Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But right at that point, Luke does something that's completely unique to his gospel. The majority of what happens between Luke 9 and Luke 19 is unique to the gospel of Luke. We call it the journey narrative. And here's how it opens. At that point in time, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Messiah would suffer and die, that he'd go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the Gentiles, and put to death. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And if you just thumb through Luke 9, 10, 11, all the way to 19, over and over again, Luke will set up that story in on the way to Jerusalem, as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. Now, as he drew near to Jerusalem, okay, that steadfastness of Jesus is a Uh, every single step towards Jerusalem is a step towards death. And every single step, as Isaiah says here, is a step of obedience, right? Like flint, I've set my face. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you, verse 10, fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. There's so many places in Isaiah that I would encourage you to memorize and keep in your back pocket. This is a big one. But do you notice its context? It pictures the Messiah, steadfastly set, the servant of the Lord who will be vindicated. And we know that story personally, don't we? Because Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. And he says, now all of you who walk in the footsteps of the servant, even in the darkest darkness, trust in the name of the Lord. Rely on God. This is three weeks now that I've quoted this to you out of the book of Romans. But again, if God has freely given us his son, how will he not give us all good things? if he has proven his word while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, how much more now that we are his children can we trust him with our lives? If he's taking care of our eternal life, how much more can we trust him with our daily life? Okay. And so he says here, anyone who follows, who obeys the voice of the servant of the Lord, even if it's dark, trust the Lord. You will not be disappointed. Verse 11, behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and the torches that you have kindled. This you have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Now that's a little cryptic, but it's presenting two alternatives, two ways to handle darkness. One is to trust in the Lord of light and the other is to kindle your own fire. And he says, all right, you guys who want to make your own way, you who want to save yourself, go ahead and try. He says, but that way leads to death. There's a way, Proverbs says, that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. Chapter 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. Remember the audience again? The remnant. Isaiah calls them the remnant. They're just the leftovers of God's people. And he says, don't forget that this whole story began with one man and a barren wife. Don't forget that what I'm capable of, like Ezekiel. Ezekiel's brought out into a valley and the valley is full of dry bones. And God speaks to him in the wind and says, son, can these dry bones live? And he says, you know, Lord. That's the right answer, right? Here, it's the same idea. He says, Can I who brought life out of nothing not bring life out of death? Can I who made a people, a great nation of Israel, out of a man and his barren wife and that miraculous son and his barren wife and that miraculous son and his barren wife, can I not meet you where you are? Israel, verse 3, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden her deserts like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set justice for a light to the peoples. Remember, peoples plural always refers beyond Israel to the nations. My people Israel, the peoples, everyone else, Okay. So this law is going to go out. He says here, the coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heaven and look at the earth beneath for the heaven vanished like smoke and the earth wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Now that's not here a statement about what will happen at the end of time except in the fact that everything that we live in is subject to time, right? In scientific terms, we call it entropy. Stuff slows down. The second law of thermodynamics, stuff goes from organized and orderly to chaos, from together to not together, okay? Corruption is the state of the world we live in. And he says, wind history forward until everything is gone, but my word will stand. My salvation will stand. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them up like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Again, he addresses those who will believe, those who will obey, those who will trust the servant. And he says, don't fear the enemies that you'll encounter, because they're just dust They're just vapor. They're not going to last. He says, but I and my promises will. Verse 9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now, some suggest here that the reference to Rahab is Isaiah playing with some Babylonian creation myths. If you look at the creation myths of Mesopotamia, the creation myths of Babylon, and a few of the other places, you find one of the gods attacking a great monster, some sort of great beast or a dragon, and then carving that up and creating out of it the world as we know it, okay? However, that's not Rahab, okay? That's not, that's Tiamat in Babylon, okay? If he wanted to use the story, he'd use the right name here. They just see cut him to pieces and they go, oh, that sounds like a Babylonian myth. But what's interesting here is Isaiah has already used this name, Rahab, not for a Babylonian god from the, um, from the pantheon of Babylon, but as a nickname for Egypt. Now, when you read that again, suddenly we're not talking about a creation myth at all. We're talking again about Exodus. In fact, look at the context of this statement. Verse 9 again. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, as in the days of old, the generations long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the Redeemer to pass over? Okay, a dried up sea, a defeated enemy, a Passover. Sound familiar? It's the Exodus. As always, the paradigm of redemption in the Old Testament and the New is the exodus, this first-time demonstration of God's salvation. And then notice what happens here. This is so interesting, verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. Now, why is that interesting? First, this is a word-for-word quotation of earlier in Isaiah. So at first reading, and this is clearly what's happening in the text, Isaiah quotes himself. But notice the context here. Who's speaking in this passage? Is it Isaiah who's calling for God to rise up and save his people again? No, it's the people themselves. What happens here is the people of Israel take the words of Isaiah as their own. Believing in the promises of God. Reminding themselves of what Isaiah and therefore the Lord has said, and repeating it, that this is what's happened for us. God, rise up and do what you did, and do it again. It's like that hymn we sing in this church a lot. I've seen you move the mountains, and I believe I'll see you do it again. It's the people of Israel here saying, I've seen you redeem your people, and I believe you'll do it again. We will be ransomed. We will come to Zion with singing. We shall, will see sorrow and sighing flee away verse 12 I I am he who comforts you who are you that you are who are you that you are afraid of man who dies of the son of man who's made like grass and have forgotten the lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy and where is that wrath of the oppressor he who is bowed down shall be speedily released he shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who steers up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I've put my words in your mouth. And I've covered you in the shadow of my hands, establishing the heavens, and laying the foundation of the earth, and saying to Zion, You are my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who've drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. Okay, get the picture here. He sees Israel as being hungover effectively, drunk on the judgment of God. And they've drank it down to the dregs, that means to the bottom of the cup, and because of that, they're staggering. Verse 18, there is none to guide her among all the sons she is born. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she is brought up. Okay, what is the paradigm of what a drunk person needs? Someone to take them by the hand and get them home. One of my uh, favorite books is by George MacDonald. It's called Sir Gibby. And Gibby's just a little boy who happens to be deaf and his father's a drunk. Not deaf, deaf. (coughs) Gibby is deaf and his father is a drunk. And there's this scene that's always stuck with me in the book where he goes to get his father home. He's just a boy of like eight. He goes to get his father home from the bar and the way George MacDonald explains it is that his father is like a top. And Gibeah is running back and forth from his right to his left to keep him from falling over, you know, on his way home. But God looks out at Israel and he says, there was no one to help you. As you staggered, there was nothing to happen, but you would fall. He says, verse 19, these things, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So the judgment is full. It's complete. It's total. Israel's down for the count, right? But then verse 21, therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I've taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, and you shall drink it no more, and I'll put it into the hands of your tormentors. Have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over, and have made your back like the ground over the street for them to pass over. In other words, God says, This time of judgment is coming to an end, and I'm going to bring judgment upon your enemies instead. Okay. Now, there's one thing I want to point out to you here because it's significant. It is this passage, as well as a few others in the Old Testament, that help us to understand Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, there, knowing what's about to happen, falls to his knees and with great grief, prays, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is the cup that Jesus is talking about? The only cup in scripture is this one, the cup of God's wrath. In fact, we find it in the book of Revelation in its fullest and most potent form. Let's see if I can remember how John puts it. He talks about a cup of God's wrath for Babylon, which is undiluted, full strength, to the brim. Okay. But that's what Jesus is facing. That's what he's grieved about. That's what he asks if there's any other way. The only way, as we'll see in just a few chapters here, the only way that God could redeem sinful humankind was that that wrath had to be expunged. It had to be taken care of. And Jesus drank the cup. He drank it fully and completely. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 8 says basically that he drank it to the dregs. Therefore, there's now no condemnation to those who are Christ Jesus, not a drop left for us. But that's how we know what Jesus is talking about there, because this is the only cup. This is the cup. This is the one that he drinks. Chapter 52, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And so the picture here is one of permanent safety and security and holiness. That's why it mentions the uncircumcised and the unclean. Again, when we get to the book of Revelation and it talks about heaven and the new Jerusalem. What's striking about those passages is two things. Okay, one, and this is the unique mark of the Christian view of heaven, what makes it heaven in Revelation 21 and 20 is the presence of God. It's the fact that God is dwelling in the people that makes heaven heaven in John's vision, okay? But second, the other defining feature of that passage, the thing that's focused on most, is not what will be in heaven, but what won't be And I saw no, and there will be no, and none of this, and there will be no, over and over again. Go and count it for yourself sometime. John's vision is a vision of subtraction of the removal of things. In fact, there will be no pain, no crying, no sin, no death. Okay, it's the same picture that Isaiah lays out here, where basically Jerusalem will be so purified that there will be no more need for further judgment. They will be so holy, there will be nothing unsafe in the city. There will be no more anything that enters into its midst that would tarnish it, that would darken its doorstep. That's what Isaiah says here, verse 3. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them from the north. Now, therefore, what I have here, declares the Lord, seeing my people are taken away from nothing. Okay, Egypt, Assyria, and now Babylon. Those are the three that Isaiah references there. And he says, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. remember what Isaiah's been trying to say? Yes, things are dark and they're dire, but before the salvation comes, I'm going to set these things right, and through that salvation, I'm going to bring out the full of all the promises. Consider what it says in Daniel. Daniel has a vision, and he says it's, this vision is for the fulfillment of all the prophecies, for the ending of of sin and sacrifice, for the restoration of the temple. It's the whole kit and caboodle. And if you go and read that prophecy, it's a prophecy about the Messiah who would come and be cut off, okay? It's the same idea here. It's all going to be bound up in that. And then notice one more song, one more praise. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Do you remember in 2 Kings chapter 7, where where Samaria, the capital of the northern tribes of Israel, is surrounded by their enemies, and they're being starved out, and it's gotten so bad that the economy's gone to pot, there's nothing to eat, people are starving. Four lepers are sitting at the gate, and they have this conversation, because that's how bad it's gotten. We only have a couple of options here. We can keep sitting in the gate, and we'll die. We can go into the city, but there's nothing to eat in the city, so nobody will help us, and we'll die. So let's turn ourselves over to the enemies. Maybe they'll have mercy on us, and if they don't, it's just the same alternative as the other ones. We die, okay? Which is, I would suggest to you a very slim likelihood that this enemy army is going to take in a bunch of life-threatening, contagious lepers, okay? But that's how bad the logic is, okay? And so as they're on their way the enemy armies that are gathered around suddenly hear this sound of an army full of chariots and they think somehow Samaria's gotten a message out to Egypt reinforcements have come we got to get out of here they don't even take time to pack up their belongings they leave their tents they leave their shoes they leave everything behind they're just gone and so these four lepers walk into the camp and they look around and it's deserted and they eat and they drink And they clothe themselves and they bury some treasure and then one of them speaks up and goes, hey, this isn't right. Clearly God has delivered Israel and they don't even know it, right? Isn't that a little bit wild? Here they are enjoying the victory of God and there's an entire city that thinks they're still defeated, that's still starving, that doesn't know. And he goes, we have to go tell them. And they come and the message is such good news, it's actually unbelievable. And the guards over the wall go, I think this is probably a trap. But they send a couple of courageous soldiers to check it out and they find it to be the case. Do you understand now this idea of beautiful feet, of those who bring good news? Even these lepers, probably not, but I'll use the illustration anyways, they're put up on the shoulders of the people and march through town, right? They're seen as good people because they bear such good news, right? A parade is required. That's the picture here. Um, verse 8 the voice of your watchmen they lift up their voice together they sing for joy for eye to eye they see the return of the lord to zion break forth together into singing you waste places of jerusalem for the lord has comforted his people he has redeemed jerusalem the lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our god and then there's a call verse 11 depart depart go out from there touch no unclean thing Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now again, the therefore of this is, be prepared to leave. Be ready to go out, just like Egypt, they ate the Passover meal, and they ate it with their sandals on with one foot out the door, metaphorically, ready to go because God was going to deliver them. He says, be prepared because this is going to happen and you're not going to be chased out like it was last time. You're going to walk home freely. But interestingly enough, it's also this language, I believe, that Peter picks up on and gives us an exhortation for us where he basically says if God has brought about this greater deliverance, then separate yourselves from the world that you live in. Not the people, but the ways of the people. If you've been brought out of the city, if you've been removed from judgment, taken from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of light, how then should you live? And Peter, if I remember right, he refers to this passage to do so. Now, all of this has been building, and we have some questions. We see the servant of the Lord who's going to set everything right, that all the promises of God, if you will, are yes and amen in him. We've seen that there's going to be some sort of rejection mocking, spitting, surprising defeat, and that somehow that defeat will be the victory. But here's where it gets real. Here's where it gets explicit, okay? Chapter 53 is the resolve of the entire book, going all the way back to the beginning when God says, I have a way towards forgiveness. I have a way to set these things right, and it's not because you're going to become faithful, but I will prove my faithfulness, right? All of these tensions are bringing to this place, and finally, we get the most, uh, the final and culminating climaxing servant song, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. Now, side note, that phrase for high and lifted up is used three times in Isaiah and always of God himself. So it's striking here to find it of the servant, especially because remember what God said last week? I am God alone. There is no other. I will share my glory with no one. And yet here he says the servant will be high and lifted up using the same language that has been reserved in Isaiah for God himself. That's where things are headed. But first, verse 14, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. High and lifted up, praised by the people, but first you won't even be able to look at him. His appearance was so marred, you couldn't even tell he was human anymore. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle is a weird word. It's not one that we use in a lot of contexts. You can sprinkle seasoning. You can sprinkle sprinkles. Okay. In the Bible, it really only has one connotation, and that's the sprinkling of blood. Okay. If you go back to the book of Exodus, When God uh, gives his covenant to the people of Israel, Moses kills the calf of the covenant and he puts the blood in a bowl and he sprinkles it on the people of Israel, okay? It's of purifying, it's of sanctifying, it's of forgiveness and it says here that this one who's marred beyond appearance, he'll sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see and that which they've not heard, they understand. Remember that language from earlier? Hearing, you will not hear. Seeing, you will not see. But here it's reversed. What you've never heard, you'll suddenly hear. What you couldn't see, you'll suddenly come to understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, and so there's this statement here of, again, resistance to the message. Who is believed? Who's going to understand? Who is going to understand this and then it explains verse 2 for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground that word there for root was used of the same servant back in uh in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 where it says out of the stump of Jesse shall come a root okay but the point here the idea is out of dry ground it's it's surprising it's unexpected it's just a little plant okay in fact it's the same idea with a stump What does a stump make you think of? The end of the life of a tree, and suddenly there's this new life out of it. Okay. Um, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Unimpressive. Nothing striking. You know, we, we have a tendency to portray Jesus in films as a beautiful person. But Isaiah says he wasn't going to be memorable. He wasn't going to be physically attractive. He wasn't going to be noticed in all. And then, look, he continues here. Um, Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I want you to notice a new pronoun there. It's the pronoun we, right? And so the idea here is that Isaiah is speaking of one of a group of people, and they don't get it. They despise, they reject, they, uh, they hide their faces. They give him no esteem. Then notice verse 4 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Okay, so his life is one of many sorrows, one of grief. But now Isaiah has the epiphany. He's like, But the griefs were ours. But the sorrows were ours. In fact, he carries it further he says yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted we thought God was bringing judgment on him we thought everything we're seeing was the evidence of God's disapproval but notice what he says in verse 5 but he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed when we talk theologically about what God does on the cross, we call it, in language, penal substitutionary atonement. Okay, penal involving a judgment penalty. Substitutionary meaning in place of. Okay? Now, this is the language that the New Testament uses to talk about the cross, but it's also the language that Isaiah uses. Isaiah says here, we thought he was being judged on his, ha- on his behalf, but it was our transgressions. That he paid for it was our punishment that he bore it's his chastisement that brought us peace it's his stripes that bring us healing and then verse six all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all we did the sinning he bore the punishment okay. now there are other interpretations of this passage that don't involve jesus um, the modern Jewish interpretation is usually that this speaks of the people of Israel. Okay? And let's be honest, the Jews know how to suffer. They've been through the ringer quite a few times in very different nations. But when we look at Isaiah and he refers to my people, who else is he talking about but the Jews? And when we look to the history of Israel, can we really say that their suffering was vicarious and on behalf of others? What's really interesting is in early Jewish history, after Jesus had come, for the first few centuries, because as you can imagine, this passage became an important apologetic to Christians. One that they would open up to their Jewish friends and say, it's right here in your Bible. And so the rabbis started to declare that this entire chapter was a Christian interpolation, that it wasn't actually a part of Isaiah's book originally. And they continued that for a long, long time. But then something really significant happened, okay? About 60 years ago, a shepherd boy out in the land of Israel threw a stone into a cave and heard a pot broke. And when he went inside, he found all of these pots and in them, we found what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you go to the shrine of the book in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, you will find a copy, not the original, but one of the things they found in that Dead Sea Scrolls, which is an entire, without missing a single verse, copy of the book of Isaiah that is older than Jesus. And guess what's right in the middle of it? Isaiah 53. And so, uh, so now, like I said, there's a modern interpretation that it's Israel, but that doesn't really fit progressive Christians who don't believe in prophecy suggest all sorts of things out of their, well, honestly, out of thin air that this could be. But it's clear that it's coming from their determination that this cannot be real prophecy that speaks of Jesus. But if you're familiar with the Gospels, if you've read them, The parallels are so profound. The picture is painted, and not just the fact that it's like, oh, it says he'd be mocked, and look, that's the language that Mark uses. That's not what I mean. I mean here that the whole concept of Christ dying on the cross for our sins, bearing the punishment on his shoulders, and being brought back to life, it's written large right here in its full theological glory. It's not just Psalm 22. It's Isaiah 53, and it's so deep. In fact, notice verse 7 he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so here again, the servant is one who endures the shame and the despising as an act of obedience and trust in the Lord. Verse 8 by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Okay, so what we see here is false trial, oppression and judgment, right? And then it says, as for his generation, everyone went, that's it, he's over, he's dead. The language here of cut off is a technical term. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in one of two ways. Either estranged from the people, right? That's what it says in Leviticus. He who does these things shall be cut off from his people. Or it means capital punishment. But if you look at the rest of this passage, capital punishment is the only one because we're going to find death and a grave, right? It's all here. The idea here is one of death. But notice again, he says, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. He doesn't get the normal natural family burial, but he's buried in a different place. He's, uh, he's his reputation is of a criminal. And so he gets a criminal death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, for the most part, what we've read up to this point has basically said that God, through this servant, is going to accomplish something, that it's going to be substitutionary, that he's going to be rejected by his own people, and yet God has a greater plan. But listen to the words of verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This says more, doesn't it, than just Israel would kill their Messiah. It says it would be God's will to crush the Messiah. This is why Peter, when he's preaching to the Jews in the beginning of the Acts, says the one whom you lawlessly handed over and crucified, according to the foreordained will of God. Which one is it? Is it lawless rejection or God's foreordained will? It's both. But more importantly here, God's desire was to put the judgment, the wrath, the full cup upon Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief who makes his soul an offering for guilt. Now, there are those who look at this and they find it intolerable the language they like to use is cosmic child abuse. How can we call a God of love who would, who would treat his own son in this way? How can we sanctify such a horrible act as being this great divine act? And one of the things that we tend to forget is that Jesus here is a willing sacrifice. That this isn't something that the father just abusively puts the son through against his will. Remember, we're talking about a Trinitarian view of God. This is not just some random human that God drew out of a box and said, you won the lottery and crushes him. Jesus consents to the will of the Father, not just on earth, but in heaven. He comes for this reason. He comes for this plan. That's why Jesus is both the sacrifice and the priest. He's both the God who is hanging on the cross and he's the God who chose the cross It all goes together. It's all interrelated, but we can't get away from this this reality that this is the plan and choice of God, and this is what he's done. And then notice it says his soul makes an offering for guilt. The guilt offering is one of the five Levitical sacrifices, and here's what's unique about it. It's the one that you had to bring when you were consciously aware of and confess your sin. There's also the sin offering. The sin offering is generic. It's just offered because you're a sinner. But the guilt offering is offered when you specifically lay your finger on things and say, This is what I've done. This is reparations for that. That's the image that Isaiah uses to connect here this Lamb of God with that Lamb of God. That's the connotation. The idea here is, is that this willing offering is presented here use me for your sins. But it also implies that we subjectively choose, confess, recognize, lay. I mean, here, all sins are laid on Jesus's shoulders. But when we talk about a guilt offering, there's an identification with that. There's a laying our hand on the head of the sheep and cutting its throat, right? There's a significance in that image there. But notice what it says here. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Surprise ending. Death. Grave. Cut off. But he will see beyond that. He will live beyond that. He will see many generations. Okay, he continues here. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Psalm 22 plays the same way. We make a mistake when we hear Jesus quote the opening of Psalm 22 on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And see that as Jesus just throwing in the towel of utter despair. Now, to be clear, we've already seen him in the garden. He is fully human. He wrestles with God's will. He feels the full weight of what's happening. But Psalm 22 is not one of the dark, hopeless psalms. It's a psalm of deliverance. And it's surprising because it's the same thing. The psalmist goes all the way to the point of death. They pierce my hands and feet, it says. You can see all of my bones. I was surrounded by my enemies. There was none to deliver me. It gets all the way to death, and then suddenly it turns to rejoicing in God's deliverance, just like Isaiah 53 does. Death, destruction, defeat, and yet, that's not the end of the story we see the same thing here. In fact, notice what it says in 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous. That phrase there, accounted righteous, that's the concept that we call justification. It means that God has done the math in such a way that your sins were subtracted from your column and put in Jesus's. And then they were dealt with on the cross. And then Jesus' righteousness was subtracted from Jesus' column and put in yours. And so you're now justified, seen as righteous. But that's what Isaiah says here. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called that verse the great exchange. But Isaiah beat Luther to the punch, beat Paul to the punch. Here, he lays out that idea. And then notice how it finishes, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, I will highly exalt him. He will be one of the greats. He will be at the top of the food chain. He will be exalted. In other words, we're getting back to where we started back in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be highly lifted up and exalted. And then we watch the downward slope all the way to the bottom. And now we watch it as it comes all the way back up. Okay. Why will he be exalted? Why will he divide his portion with the many and with the strong? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What is the glory of Jesus? What is it the reason he's so exalted? Philippians puts it this way. He who was in the very form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. But he made himself of no reputation and taking on the form of a man, he became as a servant and was obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow and every tongue confess on heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where does Paul get that storyline arc? He gets it here from Isaiah. But I want to point out one last thing here as we finish here. It says, he bore the sins of many, and then it says, he makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you see the grammatical difference there? It's easy to miss because we don't generally think about grammar. He bore the sins, that's past tense. He makes intercession. Depending on how you parse it in the Hebrew, that's either present or future. This is not just referring to Jesus' words on the cross when he prays for those who crucify him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Most likely this refers to what Jesus is doing now as he ever lives to make intercession for us. The idea here is of Jesus' ongoing mediatorial ministry that's fully available, inviting people in, Again, Jesus isn't just the sacrifice, but the priest. And here, that's the final point that Isaiah makes. Now, here's the thing, and I really hope you get a chance to come back next week, because this shifts the gears of the entire book. And what happens next is all the results and follow-through and consequences of this, and it is a whole new world. We're going to encounter things in uh, the story here to come that shape John's view of heaven, and I saw the new heavens and the new earth, that comes from this section of Isaiah. We are going to see things in the Old Testament that seem permanent and unreachable be overturned, and so we're going to find, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, the eunuch, or the one whose testicles are crushed, they're cut off from the people. They're kept distance, They're not allowed in the assembly of the Lord, but all of a sudden there's a place for them now after Jesus Christ. We're going to see the barren And suddenly she's going to have more children and more rejoicing. We're going to see all of these things change. But the pivot is right here. Isaiah has basically been saying, hold all on Israel. Salvation is coming. Just a minute. I'm going to tell you more. And he finally gets there. He lays it all on the table and he goes, now, let's talk about what's coming after. That's where we'll be headed next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. One of your apostles tells us that the prophets long to know about the fulfillments of these promises, but we, we see their fulfillment. We have the eyewitness testimony of the New Testament. We have the words of those who placed their fingers in the scars in your wrists, in the scar in your side, who saw you alive, and who lived their lives and died their deaths on the ground of that reality of your resurrection, who knew firsthand that the word of God was proven true and is reliable. Lord, we thank you for these great and precious promises. We thank you for all of the truth entailed within, Lord, because we know it's not just Israel. It's not just their transgressions. It's ours. We thank you so much for making a sacrifice. We thank you so much, Jesus, for being a sacrifice. We thank you so much, Holy Spirit, for applying the blood of that sacrifice to us Making us pure and holy and righteous. I pray, Lord, that we would understand what Isaiah says how beautiful are the people who bring good news. I pray, Lord, that we, like those four lepers, would go, wait, it doesn't make any sense for us to enjoy this victory and keep it to ourselves. Lord, you were a man of sorrows, and because of that, we have joy. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. Continue to apply it to us. Continue to attract us to it. Continue to make it the centerpiece of our lives and our greatest hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.